Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Your homework assignment was to watch Trial 4 on Netflix. I think it's an HBO special, and it's on Netflix now, and you were given a homework assignment And if you haven't completed your homework assignment, your grade will reflect that. I will have to take points off, guys. But I believe this series on Netflix, HBO, whatever, is in the spirit, the absolute spirit of making a murderer. I believe these shows lack investigative integrity, especially in the making a murderer series. It's all come to light now, but when these things hit the press, it's with a big splash. And they're saying that that guy, Stephen Avery, was innocent. But if you ever notice in that series, they gloss over a hell of a lot. You have to do a lot of cartwheels to believe that Stephen Avery was innocent. There was DNA, sweat DNA, on the inside of the female victim's hood of her car. There was DNA on the inside of the car. Were there irregularities? Yes, there were, but... Don't forget, the female's bodies, the victim's body, was found in his yard, set on fire in a fire pit. And this was corroborated by his nephew, who was also guilty in this case. Don't forget in this case, Stephen Avery called the service for this woman to take photographs of a car at his house using a fake name. She had been there before, and he had answered the door only clad in a towel. I mean... You really have to do a ton of bending over to believe that Stephen Avery is innocent. And I just can't believe like people are storming the palace for Stephen Avery. I get it. On the first case, on the rape, he was totally innocent. But you think the cops, the individual cops in a county department care that this guy is suing the county for false arrest? It doesn't jibe that way. That's not an everyday thing that patrolmen think about, that the township, the city, whatever is being sued. They're just doing their jobs. And I guess that department didn't really do themselves any favors in this case, but come on, there's DNA evidence, and there's a ton of evidence against Stephen Avery. Some of it is the body of the woman in his yard, and people just gloss over that. It's insane. And I'm afraid you're going to have to apply the same type of mental gymnastics that you did in making a murderer to trial four. And I'm sorry, this is going to be somewhat controversial, especially here in the Boston area. But I just don't buy it, guys. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. I'm going to go through all of it. I have a feeling people are going to try to cancel me about this podcast, about my opinion on it. I've already gotten some pretty negative emails, and I think I got one negative review, which is strange since the episode hasn't come out yet, but this case is not a close call by any stretch of the imagination. All right, guys, I guess I should just lay out my thought process on this case and Sean Ellis. 
I believe two things can be true simultaneously here. Sean Ellis and Terry Patterson murdered Detective Mulligan. Also, the Boston police detectives that brushed up against this case and did what looks to be a significant amount of work on it tainted it. So should Sean Ellis get a new trial? Yes. And I believe this, again, would be trial four, right? I just don't think it's ethical to try somebody four times for the same offense, okay? Three times was pushing it, but this was such a severe offense. Somebody, likely Sean Ellis and Terry Patterson, put five bullets into a Boston police detective's head. It's a very serious case. So we'll quickly go over some of the mental gymnastics that you'll have to do in this case to believe Sean Ellis is innocent. There's at least four people who point the finger at Sean Ellis. One of them is co-defendant, Terry Patterson. His girlfriend at the time, Latia Walker. Rosa Sanchez saw him at Walgreens more than once and with somebody else. And then there's Uncle Dave, who time and time again provided accurate and, as to the gun evidence, super accurate information that he got directly from Sean Ellis. If you remember, Uncle Dave came back and said that the guns would be found in two separate locations, one handgun in one location and one handgun in another. Then the cops go and search the field, and that's exactly how they're found. He got that directly from Mr. Ellis himself. Again, this series glosses over that, just like in Making a Murder. There's so much here that they simply gloss over. Terry Patterson, his co-defendant, they admitted to being together that night. Terry Patterson said Sean Ellis reached in to the vehicle and shot Detective Mulligan in the face five times. The guy who was with him said he did it. And there's no pushback in this series against Terry Patterson. They're all upset at the Boston police. They're pointing fingers everywhere. How come you're not mad at Terry Patterson? Why do you think there was so little pushback in this film against Terry Patterson? He said, I was there, I did it. He was convicted in the first time around pretty quickly. And then when he got a retrial, he took a plea bargain deal and allocated to the fact that he did it again with Sean Ellis. That's some pretty damning evidence, and they act like it doesn't exist. All right, guys, we briefly went through what Terry Patterson said about Sean Ellis and what his Uncle Dave said about Sean Ellis. Very compelling evidence. The next person we're going to cover, and I was going to go through the whole story as we normally do, but don't forget your assignment was to watch this. It's a long, drawn-out series, so it, it's a little difficult. And I'll give you a synopsis of the case as we go, but... For right now, let's move on to Sean Ellis's girlfriend, Latia Walker. So Latia Walker was Sean Ellis's girlfriend. And by the time they had already met or started dating or whatever, she had already had a baby. It was an infant and still in diapers. And I think they were actually going to Walgreens on the night in question. And that night was September 26, 1993, in the early morning hours. But I'll take you through that whole timeline. So the HBO special spends a lot of time with Miss Walker, and we end up learning that during the trial, she ended up testifying. 
and she made it seem like she was forced to testify against Sean Ellis. So if you remember from the series Trial 4, Sean Ellis puts himself at the scene, and he's at Walgreens during those early morning hours buying diapers, and I believe it was for Miss Walker's baby. So the investigation ramped up pretty quickly, and when Sean Ellis went to trial just after Terry Patterson was found guilty, Miss Walker testified that her boyfriend, Sean Ellis, had brought two guns to their home and placed them in the nightstand. A short time later, two other men arrived and took the guns out and disposed of them in the field. This would have been pretty easy for Miss Walker to deny, but the fact remained that her fingerprints were found on the clip of one of the guns. So the guns used in the homicide of Detective Mulligan were stored at Miss Walker's residence and they were brought there by her boyfriend, Sean Ellis. I know I just said that, but I'm trying to be clear here. She pointed the finger directly at him, and she had to because her fingers were on the weapon, and she kind of hinted that they were talking about taking her kid away, meaning the authorities, the police. You know, they kind of play this off as heavy-handed. This is a vicious homicide. They're playing to win, right? This woman has testimony they need, and maybe she was forced to testify truthfully, but if she told the truth... And she did because her fingerprints were on the gun. What the hell? How do you get over that? That's the death nail right there. That ties Sean Ellis directly to those guns. So one of the most absurd moments in this film, and there were many absurd moments, was when Miss Walker implied that the Boston police had just taken her fingerprints and then the gun was discovered with her fingerprints on them. So she's implying, she raises her hand to say, oh, I, I'm not accusing them, but I'm accusing them type of thing. She's basically implying that the Boston police took the fingerprints that they took from her at the courthouse and then applied them directly to the weapon so they could pressure her to testify against Sean Ellis. I'm sorry, that's just horseshit. Sorry. I don't even think that technology is available now, never mind in the 90s, to put a fingerprint from a fingerprint card onto a weapon. Sorry, big stretch, big stretch. You have to do some Olympic-style gymnastics, mental gymnastics, to swallow that. So don't forget now, that's the second witness who ties Sean Ellis to these guns. The first witness was Uncle Dave who stated that Sean said those guns were in the same lot, but in two separate locations within the lot. That's very specific. Only somebody who has that information firsthand would know that, and that's exactly how those guns were found. Two witnesses at this point tie Ellis to the guns. Sorry, but there it is. Latia Walker's testimony was devastating to Sean Ellis's case. But again, in this special, Trial 4, they just gloss over it like it's a little bump in the road. She puts the murder weapon and Detective Mulligan's weapon directly in Sean Ellis's hands, okay? So keep that in mind. All right, we're going to move on to Rosa Sanchez. If you watched the film, 
Rosa Sanchez gets an amazing look at Sean Ellis, right? If you just watch the cartoon they make up, I don't know why they did in cartoon animated format, but they lock eyes. He's crouched down at Mulligan's SUV and he was looking in and you know what comes next, but they lock eyes and she goes in and does her shopping. She's pretty wary because she can tell that he's a cop. You know, he's got the orange jacket on. She doesn't know what this guy's doing at the window, but it's almost four o'clock in the morning and it probably can't be good, but this is an urban environment and she continues on to do her shopping. She does her shopping about 20 minutes later, I believe it was, she comes out and now she sees Sean Ellis and a person the police believe is Terry Patterson at the payphone, still at the front of the store. And at the front of the store, it's fully lit up with outdoor lighting, indoor lighting. So it's like daytime right at the entrance there. You know how these stores are. They want their parking areas to be fully lit. And at least this area by the entranceway was. So she got a great look at him. I know she faltered in later identifications, but she did pick him out of a lineup twice. And at one point, there seemed to be some confusion on the lineup where she had pointed to somebody saying that he had stalked me. What I think had happened to Miss Sanchez, they gave her a photograph that was somebody she actually knew, and she was explaining that this particular person in the photograph was stalking her. So it was kind of separate from the incident at Walgreens. And definitely a new sheet of photographs should have been produced and they weren't. And all of this could have been taken care of at trial. And I think it was. I think Rosa Sanchez was an excellent witness for the Commonwealth. What the defense tried to say was, due to the fact that Miss Sanchez knew and was at least quasi-family with Detective Acera, was later found to be corrupt. They say Sarah tainted Sanchez. I don't believe that. I believe she was just a good citizen. I just believe that. That's how she comes across. Regular working stiff, told the truth, police asked the question. And you have to remember, Miss Sanchez didn't originally go to the detective Sarah. She went to another cop she personally knew. And that cop brought her into the station house and eventually to Sarah. And that's how that went. She didn't call a Sarah right away. She called somebody else. And she stands by this. She's quite frankly adamant that she saw Sean Ellis at that vehicle at that time. And I believe her. What does she have to gain by it? She's been called all kinds of names. Quite frankly, she just seems like a regular upstanding citizen going about her business. Cops ask a question and she gives an answer. And the defense didn't like it. So you have to ask yourselves, guys, in all this, those four people, Uncle Dave, Rosa Sanchez, Latia Walker, and Terry Patterson, they all lied on Sean. Sean is the only one in this whole case, virtuous and upstanding. They all turned and point their finger at that innocent man simultaneously. Come on. Sean Ellis calls Miss Walker a liar on this instance with the guns says she's a straight up liar but do you see them together in this series best of friends they are right how do her fingerprints get on the gun used to kill detective mulligan if it wasn't from sean ellis she turned around and said 
Sean Ellis brought them into my house. She must have touched them at some point in the nightstand. Then they were found, guys. You know, if you wanted to tell me this was a misidentification, I was in a different location. I wasn't even in Boston. I was in Cambridge, something like that, where you could prove you were somewhere else. Sean Ellis puts himself right at Walgreens. Terry Patterson puts Sean Ellis right at Walgreens. Miss Walker puts the guns in Ellis's hands. And Uncle Dave tells a whole bunch of stuff that proved to be supremely accurate. You'd have to disbelieve all of those people in totality if you believed Sean Ellis is innocent. So I have to ask the question, guys, where is the mystery in this case? I'm baffled by it. So I think my viewpoint on this whole case will end up being vastly unpopular. It goes against the orthodoxy set out in this city and by that show, Trial 4. So I just have a real problem with these Netflix shows these days. And among them, as you know, is Making a Murderer. I've come to call them murdertainment. These murdertainment shows are not like you remember 2020 or even 60 minutes back in the day with Mike Wallace. Or I think Dateline is probably the best investigative show going now. It's not like that. Those shows do operate with some investigative integrity. This is just such BS. It's so one-sided. It's gross. This film may as well be a hagiography. Go look up the word hagiography, guys, and you'll get where I'm coming from. Sean is portrayed as standing up to all these liars. Terry Patterson, who said he did it. Rosa Sanchez, who saw you in the parking area. Your girlfriend, who saw you bring the guns in the house. Everybody is lying against St. Sean. He's the only one standing up against this injustice. And that's why I call this film a hagiography. And don't worry, guys, I won't leave you hanging. A hagiography is like a biography of the angels. And that's how this comes off. St. Sean Ellis. Unbelievable. I don't even know how long this special was. It was multi-episodes. But you know how slanted this was against Detective Mulligan and the Boston police? They spent exactly 20 seconds on Sean Ellis's criminal past. If you remember, they trotted out a retired probation officer who said he knew Sean from back in the day. He was a gang member, but they mentioned no criminal record. I did a little search myself. In seconds, I found out that he had just been arrested for some type of kidnapping that involved a family dispute. There were other arrests, and they just blow right past that. And if you remember, Sean was picked up, I believe, at his mother's house or somewhere nearby because he had a warrant. They were trying to interview Sean Ellis for this murder. And don't forget, Mulligan's murder, Detective Mulligan's murder, came on the heels of the murder of his two cousins whom he lived with, right? So the police have to be thinking there's three homicides in this guy's orbit in less than a week. The police department was telling Uncle Dave, we need to speak to Sean right now. And Sean was eluding them. And they had to go arrest him. Luckily, he did have a warrant so they could bring him into jail. This is somebody, at least on the periphery, of a double homicide. Days later, Mulligan's dead, and he ties himself to that homicide. 
So yeah, the police antenna are up for Sean Ellis. And if it wasn't up for Sean Ellis, if the antenna wasn't up for him, who the hell would it ever be up for? And that's when Terry Patterson gave him up. Don't forget, Terry Patterson had that distinct car that he tried to hide just after the homicide. Terry Patterson knows he did it. That's why he hid the vehicle, right? And then he got bagged. Then he got convicted. That's how it goes. It kind of worries me that people watch these shows like you'll watch a 2020 or a 60 Minutes and think you're getting a decent investigation, either an investigation that's reported on that had been conducted by the police or one that the investigative reporters do themselves. All the material just seems to come from the defense. And I get it. Prosecutors can't participate in these types of shows because they have appeals to worry about. There's other things they have to worry about. The defense has free reign to say almost anything if they're not sworn in, if they're not in the courtroom. I just don't like how they portray this as an actual investigation and there's no pushback on anything. How come the editor or the reporter isn't sitting there asking hard questions about Terry Patterson? How come Sean Ellis doesn't have to answer to why your co-defendant and your friend at the time said you reached into a car and shot a detective in the face five times. Why would he do that? That would seem to be a simple question to ask, but there's literally no pushback on Sean Ellis about anything ever. Explain to me how your girlfriend's fingerprint got on that weapon. They kind of just shrug their shoulders and move on. And no, guys, you can't move on. Once that happens, you have to stop and make them explain it to you because they're bullshitting you. And let's not forget Sean Ellis's defense team, what their strategy was. Their strategy was Terry Patterson did it. That was also Terry Patterson's strategy. Sean Ellis did it. But one of them got to the police first and told the story. That happened to be Terry Patterson. The problem for Terry Patterson his fingerprints were found on Detective Mulligan's car, right? And that's one of the reasons he's in prison or was in prison. If you want to just take note of how slanted this film is in favor of Sean Ellis, just take a listen to what his attorney, Rosemary Scarpiccio, and forgive me if I'm butchering that name, but take a listen to what she says. She says there's a rumor that Detective Mulligan's pants were around his ankles. I had never heard that, okay? And for her to say that, to repeat a rumor like that, why would somebody want to do that? Why would they want to disparage the victim of a brutal homicide, a detective on the police force who had been shot in the face for no reason? So what would be your motivation for repeating that rumor? Because that's all I believe it is, is a rumor. She may have made this up out of whole cloth. I don't know. But I honestly believe that would have been in the reports because you would have had EMTs, paramedics, emergency room personnel, emergency room physicians that all have to note that, right? Oh, unless they're part of the cover-up. Maybe they're part of the gigantic cover-up team here. So that would take probably three or four more people into this conspiracy. But what I'm really asking you to think about here is what's the motivation to repeat this rumor? And what's the motivation of the producers to keep it in? It's just to denigrate John Mulligan 
further in immediately because this was in the first 10 minutes or so of episode one, I believe. And I just think it's a horrible thing to repeat for his family. This guy is a brother, a father. And if that's not true, if that cannot be substantiated, you should have took the high road on it. But some people in the society and segments of society are held to different standards. They can say anything and they will never be challenged on it. And I believe that's the case here. Also, in terms of tone of this film, Trial 4, they have a reporter from the Boston Globe, who I'm actually a fan of, Kevin Cullen, saying at the beginning of this series that he was shocked and a little alarmed at the age of these kids. I think they were 18, 19, 20, something like that. And that shocked this reporter, Kevin Cullen. And I'm trying to remember the 1990s, especially early 1990s. People that age were committing the craziest crimes all over the place. It was just kind of wild west in Boston, especially in some neighborhoods of Boston at that time. And I was surprised to hear him say that he thought these two kids who ended up being gang members were too young to have committed a homicide of a Boston cop. But at that time, when it first came out, it wasn't known that Mulligan was asleep on a detail and he got shot in the face. That didn't come out for a while later. So people thought whoever did it was an execution. It wasn't. It was a robbery. So Kevin Cullen on that situation adds no real facts, but I guess he's, again, trying to set the tone here. Also in that same vein, they have to bring up the Carol Stewart murder, which had happened about four years prior to the murder of Detective Mulligan, I believe. And at that time, what people don't remember, at the beginning of that case, Chuck Stewart had shot himself so severely, the emergency room doctors had told the police department this could not be a self-inflicted wound. So they went with the description that Chuck Stewart gave of the person that shot him and his pregnant wife to death. So the police go with that description, and in the Mission Hill neighborhood, it's said that the Boston police overstepped their bounds and rounded everybody up. Every time there's a big police case in Boston, they bring up the Carol Stewart case as a major screw-up. And I guess that may be true, but what would you have the police do? An emergency room doctor tells you, the police department, that he couldn't have shot himself. So all you have to go on is this what appears to be a good description. And so they do that. Were the police not supposed to follow that? The doctors said he didn't shoot himself. So they had to go with something, right? And they're continuing to investigate. And sure, it came out that Mr. Stewart shot Mrs. Stewart in the head. But what were the police supposed to do? They had to go investigate. Were they too aggressive? Perhaps. But they still had to go investigate. And quite honestly, what does one case have to do with the other? They're just trying to set the stage as Boston is a regressive, racist backwater. And... I just don't believe that to be true. Where exactly is the racism in the Sean Ellis case? From Terry Patterson, who is the same race as Sean Ellis? From the girlfriend, who's the same race as Sean Ellis? From Rosa Sanchez, who's also a minority? Come on. Like I said before, guys, this case is not a close call. Some cases are. This isn't one of them. There's a crap ton of evidence against Sean Ellis. 
and they just refuse to address it. It's insane. Again, guys, my position on this is two things can be correct simultaneously. Sean Ellis and Terry Patterson were guilty of the murder of Detective Mulligan. And those detectives who worked this case were so corrupt that anything they touched should be investigated, including the Sean Ellis case. Two things can be correct at the same time. To call for his innocence, to say he's innocent, is ridiculous. He can be guilty and the corrupt detectives touched his case. The remedy for that would be a new trial. In this case, it would be a fourth trial for Sean Ellis. And that is just completely unethical. You shouldn't try somebody four times for the same offense. I think in the first two trials, or at least in the first one, the jury was kind of hung up and confused on the joint venture. This was charged as a joint venture murder. So it doesn't really even matter who pulled the trigger. And I think that confuses a jury. And I think that's what happened in those cases. But again, two things can be true at the same time. Those corrupt detectives worked this case and Sean Ellis and Terry Patterson are guilty. Terry Patterson already admitted his guilt and then pointed the finger at Sean Ellis. But that's the truth. That's what I believe happened here. I think we're probably in for some blowback. Once you go against the orthodoxy in this area, you'll be ripe for cancel culture. I think that will be attempted here. But I'm going to end part one of this case right here, and there'll be a part two to the trial for Sean Ellis case next week. All right, guys, I'll see you on the flip side. 